Hello and welcome back to the Poetry Exchange. Fiona, lovely to see you. How are you? Oh, I'm very good, Michael. How are you? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Nice to see you after our little summer break. Yes, exactly. And now it's quite autumnal. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, as Keats would have told you. I could pretend I knew that, but I didn't. <sighs> yeah, it is, it's, we're on the turn, aren't we? Um, it's been quite dramatic, that. It was like it was full-on summer, and then suddenly it was like, whoa. Well, I'll tell you what I will say, Fiona, about uh, this month's episode, is that it was recorded during one of those really, really hot periods. I can remember being stuck on a train on the way to Birmingham. Oh, yeah, it was hot. Ice needed, I seem to remember hearing, getting messages, because I was doubly hot because I was in bed with Covid. You were, that's right. That's why I wasn't that's there. Right. But I was yeah, thinking, yeah. gosh, it's a very hot day for them to be doing all this. Yeah, we had to cope without you. We were at the Skylines Festival at the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry. And um, this month's episode, in fact, is, is a live exchange. So um, we had two guests and stepping into the breach in, in your shoes, Fiona, was our dear friend Roy McFarlane, who everybody will hear what a fantastic job he did. And we spoke to two fantastic poets, Ros Goddard and Rishi Dastadar. And I won't tell you what poems they've brought. We'll do the format differently this month, Fee. We'll just uh, We'll just press play on it and let it happen, shall we? That sounds good to me, Michael. Welcome to the Skylines Festival. I'm Michael Schaefer, and we are the Poetry Exchange. There is a slight change to today's programme. The founder of the project, Fiona Bennett, has got COVID. So, uh, sadly, she can't be here. But, very excitingly, the gentleman to my left... Roy McFarlane has leapt off of the subs bench. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who don't know, Roy is the most fantastic poet, uh, former laureate of Birmingham, currently the Canal Laureate. And we're getting him just before his uh, very special appearance at the opening ceremony of the Commonwealth Games. Uh, we'll be hearing more from Roy very shortly. So, yeah, we've also got two fantastic guests one of whom is still hot-footing his way here, <laughs> but we are assured that he, he will be here. So uh, we've got that to look forward to. We're going to hear about the poems that have been friends to our guests. Before we do that, I thought it might be a good idea for us to hear a bit of poetry. So, um, Roy, I think you've brought something. I have indeed. Okay, first of all, good afternoon, Coventry. I want them to know that there is a Coventry in the room. Good afternoon, Coventry. Uh, there you go. It's a pleasure to be here. I've chosen this poem from the wonderful archive of the Poetry Exchange, where somebody brought a poem called A Short Story of Falling by Alice Oswald. It is the story of the falling rain to turn into a leaf and fall again. It is the secret of a summer's shower 
to steal the light and hide it in a flower. And every flower, a tiny tributary that from the ground flows green and momentary, is one of water's wishes, and this tale hangs in a seed head smaller than my thumbnail. If only I, a passerby, could pass as clear as water through a plume of grass to find the sunlight hidden at the tip, turning to seed, a kind of lifting rain drip. Then I might know like water how to balance the weight of hope against the light of patience. Water, which is so raw, so earthy strong, and lurks in cast iron tanks and leaks along, drawn under gravity towards my tongue to cool and fill the pipework of this song, which is the story of the falling rain that rises to the light and falls again. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. I feel cooler already. So, I'm going to bring out one of our guests, and, and that is Ros Goddard. She's a, she's a poet, she's a teacher, she's another former poet laureate of Birmingham. We've got two of them today. Her latest collection is called Lost City, published by Emma Press, and she's currently training for ordination in the Triatna Buddhist order. Ros Goddard. So, just to let you know, the plan for, for how this will work is that Ros is going to share the poem that's been a friend to her. Hopefully by that time Rishi will be here and I'll ask him to, to read it back as a kind of thank you, as part of this sort of process of exchange. Uh, and then we'll swap around and we'll hear about Rishi's poem. So, Ros, would you kick us off, uh, tell us what you're going to read uh, and read it out loud for us. Sure, thank you. Hello everyone. Thank you for coming. So my poem is Pulmonary Tuberculosis by Catherine Mansfield, published in 1918. The man in the room next to mine has the same complaint as I. When I wake in the night, I hear him turning and then he coughs and I cough. And after a silence, I cough, and he coughs again. This goes on for a long time, until I feel we are like two roosters calling to each other at false dawn from far away hidden farms. Thank you. Do you want to start by just telling us where you first came across this poem, Ross? So I came across this poem um, some years ago and um, kind of two simultaneous things occurred to me about the poem. The first thing was, as a poet, a kind of grabby instinct that I had that, wow, I want that tone. I want that stoicism, I want that beauty and tenderness in, in a poem. 
But that was only a small part of what I instinctively felt that this possibly was a poem that, I know this sounds crazy, but it's true, had the potential to be life-altering for me. And the reason that I say that is that I knew it was possible that the poem would open new doors to thought. I instinctively knew that. Since I was very young, um, I have... I suppose I would use the word blighted, if you like, by a way of habitual thinking around illness and mortality. So when I was young, when I was seven or eight years old, my mother was gravely ill. And there was a period of a year or so when we didn't know whether she would live or die. And that kind of prolonged suffering that I had and uncertainty that I had as a child was very, very painful. And I've never really been able to shake off this kind of dread of illness, of death. And yet here we have Catherine Mansfield in five lines, showing us a gateway, a doorway to a different way of thinking about illness. So it, it really caught a very deep thread in my experience and feeling. And I just felt if I pursue what's in this poem, this is going to be really, really helpful for me. And so it has proved. It's absolutely fascinating. Can you say a little bit more about this doorway to new ways of thinking? So my mother was gravely ill, and she was ill all her life. Um, she died in, in her 60s. But when I think of my mother, I think of her as consumed by illness. And here we have a poem that is really facing death and serious illness head on with a kind of great stoicism. So I feel in this poem she is absolutely inhabiting what it means to be gravely ill she knows that she feels it in her body and yet she's also an observer she is able to kind of learn if you like or adjust her thinking this is how it feels to me and the other thing that is so important to me about this poem is that when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2020 so I remember the morning very well. I knew that there was a problem with my breast, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what the consultant was going to say. And as I was grabbing the tissues out of the box, because I thought there's probably going to be some tears, I went back to this poem and I thought about the solidarity in the poem with other people who are ill. So here in this poem, it's like a language of love, the cough. They are coughing backwards and forwards. It's wordless, it's a connection, 
And she's pointing to this idea that whatever we face, we're not alone. And so when I was on the way to the hospital, I thought about the other women in my region, in my city, in my country, in the world who are going through the same possible diagnosis of breast cancer. And this was very comforting. And that's interesting that you brought that up. The, uh, if I'm not mistaken, title of a, a poem that came second or third, no, shortlisted, one of your poems, Small Moon Curve. So this is almost like a, a friend that encourages you to, to, to express yeah. yourself during this. It, it held your hand to the extent that you found a way to work through what was happening. Absolutely. And that is a magical poem, by the way. A comfort, a challenge, a way of looking at things differently. And I think really crucially, so with that poem that you mentioned, Roy, Small Moon Curve, um, a point of connection with other women, with carers of women who've been diagnosed with breast cancer. And it's like... One of the things that comes up for me about this poem, I don't know if you've come across the phrase, all facts are friendly. So that whatever you face in life, whatever is factual, so in my case, the diagnosis of breast cancer, that is simply a fact. So the choice that I have is how I move into the world with that diagnosis and how it affects my life, how I can connect with other people, other women. And so when I wrote Small Moon Curve, I had Catherine Mansfield's tone, stoicism and tenderness in mind. So in that sense, she has held my hand as a poet, kind of all all the way through. That's lovely. Um, Rishi, do you want to just take a seat? Thank you so much for making it. I'm kind of fascinated by that wordless communication that happens in here. And of course, that's so interesting for a poet to bring a poem that is about wordless communication. Mm. Uh, I think that's really yeah. fascinating because in a way, I suppose it's sort of beyond words, isn't it? What could they actually say to each other but the comfort that solidarity of being in that together is really I'm finding really moving now I've, I've kind of heard you speaking about mm, that mm. and and you know uh, until I feel we are like two roosters calling to each other at a false dawn those eyes wide open you know she herself tried many experimental treatments for her tuberculosis and they always were a kind of false dawn you know the rooster sings at a false dawn um you know wakes us up too early um and so she knows this she knows that she is facing death at some point i mean she she died in 1924 i think at 34 so that clarity Graham Green talked about it as, you know, this splinter of ice in the heart. I love that. 
I love that because what what other choice do we have? And and certainly from my point of view, it's like the more that you embrace your mortality, the more wonderful life becomes. It's really interesting. You're talking about that idea of looking at things in a different way, and I I was very struck at the way the poem begins: "The man in the room next to mine," and it ends. Uh, as these roosters from far away hidden farms. <laughs> and that's that sort of reframing, in a way, I think, that you're talking about, about looking at things in a different way. Looking at things in a different way, and also, of course, they are in this sanatorium, very enclosed in their tiny rooms. So this is also a wish into the future, um, if only, you know, that we did have the freedom of cockerels, on a faraway hidden farm to shout into the dawn in this very exuberant and beautiful way. But we don't, but we can think about it and we can kind of inhabit that beauty. And I do think um, something that you mentioned there, the wordlessness of poetry, the wordlessness of feeling. What I've come to realise is that for me, poetry is not an intellectual pursuit in terms of the writing of it. It manifests itself in a wordless way in my body, in the spaces somehow. And I find this very exciting. I find it really, really fascinating to kind of not know. I have no idea, <laughs> you know, about anything to some extent. Let's see what emerges. But I do like how you talk about the space that we write into. Those first few lines seem so real, stark, simple. And, and as Terence says, there's got to be sort of like a, a fire in the basement of our poetry kind of thing. And it's that turn until I feel we are like two roosters. And then suddenly, wow. Does, uh, that, does that make sense? Oh, total sense. And in actual fact, this wonderful book the Penguin Book of the Prose Poem. Her poem appears in here. And um, Jeremy Noel Todd talks about this poem with, you know, the hot air balloon and the burner underneath the hot air balloon. That's where the poem lifts, isn't it, as you've pointed out? So you've got a kind of almost diary-type, very straight... Yeah. The man in the room next to mine has the same complaint as I. <laughs> you know, and I, I love that, that just the, the straightness of it. But then the openness and the lift at the end and, um, you know, that kind of verbless last sentence <laughs> from far away, hidden far. You know, I know that it will continue to be the, the most amazing companion and reminder because for me, when I get into habitual thought patterns about mortality, about anxiety, sometimes what I literally do is step to one side out of this unhelpful river of thought into a different way of looking at an issue. Um, and, so, and that helps me. That's a reminder. Does it just come to you, the poem, because you know it so well? Or do you reach for it? How does that happen? I think it's always with me because I'm now such an advocate of it and of what it does. That is to say, the observing of one's experience rather than the wholesale 
being completely kind of buffeted by, you know, the, the dreadful things that can happen in life. So that, that now is, is much more my way of navigating the world than a track that's unhelpful. Rishi, thank you so much for all of your efforts to be here. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to uh, in, invite you to, uh, if you had any thoughts about this. Yeah, um, as I was reading it last night and reading it on the train up this morning, there are two things that were coming to mind. One was the way that this snags, and it really captures and makes you stop at places where you're not expecting it. Um, and so, yeah, that first point, the man in the room next to mine has the same complaint as I. And my ear is so attuned to m expecting me that the I is just almost the first place where I went, oh, okay, there is something about to happen here because, you know, you're thrown off. And then the second point was the, um, the third cough. And then he coughs and I cough. And after a silence, I cough. And it almost felt like, yeah, this expert ratcheting up of the drama. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because you, you, know, you don't actually get the poem if, if there's only the one cough or the two coughs. But the three then suddenly is... Yeah, okay, there is the story. There is, the, you know, you know you are primed for something to happen. And then perhaps, you know, staring out of the train window at nothing moving and what have you, but those faraway hidden farms didn't feel very hidden. Um, and just the longing that's in those one, two, three, four, five words, it's, it's an incredible amount of yearning just to pack into five words and hearing what Ross has been saying about the constriction and the sanatorium this expansion and the opening out makes perfect sense and it's just so radically brave as well you know when you think about how much we talk about good writing needs verbs and something needs to happen and something you know and there needs to be this movement and then there's suddenly there's not at all this moment of stillness can be absolutely perfect and a way of grounding and locating you and just actually providing that moment that the poem demands mm -hmm. and actually you as reader didn't know that you needed until you landed on it as well. I hadn't clocked that it was verbless, that final line. And of course, I suppose that's perfect because there is nothing to do <laughs> in the situation they're in. And the poem is so kind of sparse and factual and unpoetic until that moment. And so then just the bringing to life of that image at the end becomes so powerful because all we've had is mm. I cough and he coughs, you know, and it's, that's extraordinary. She does wrong foot us in that sense, doesn't she? Because as Rishi says, uh, what's going on here? We know that there's some drama but it's not really our experience of a poem. Mm. Yes, that was something as well, because you can imagine a different version of this which really foregrounds the coughing and the pain and the locus on the, on the illness yeah. itself. And by taking one, two, three steps away from that, it, mm. it makes it all that more sharper. Yeah 
for almost refusing to give you anything other than the cough. Mm. Yes, that's right. That's the sort of stoicism you're talking about, I, I guess, Rose, and that kind of observing the thing in a, in a purely factual way. Purely factual way, and, and in some ways, you know, I think the man in, in the next room is the one who is, is foregrounded more. It's, it's like she's not really interested in telling us about pulmonary mm. tuberculosis. You know, she, this is a transcendental poem. It moves beyond the illness, the sanatorium, the coughing, and it goes into other territory of, without saying, you know, this is left to us. So it's a challenge. If you're in this situation, if you're facing what I'm facing, how are you, you going to deal with it? You know, that's, for me, the absolute genius mm. of the poem is, is the challenge that faces us all. It's a very human poem about the human suffering and how it is that we, we can go on. I'm just thinking about your spiritual side when you speak of on a journey to be ordained. I know you're a Buddhist. Um, as a friend, as a poem, how... Is, is it, you know, a mirror, or is it uh, part of the journey? T tell, me, tell me more about that. Well, Roy, just before we came in, we were talking about that wonderful concept that you raised around the clearing. The clearing, yeah. I mean, do you want, do you want to say something about <laughs> that? Because I, when I thought, I thought, oh, gosh, yes, that's very... I was sharing with Raz that um, I'm looking at this idea um, called the clearing. It comes from Beloved by Toni Morrison and Baby Shugs. During the p period of, of enslavement and when runaway slaves had run away, she had created a, a space in the clearing of the forest. And this place, there's a beautiful extract where she says, come, ye men dance, ye women cry. And then she flips it, laugh and sing and roll and cry. So all the men, all the women, all the children came into this space and it was just a place to do all these things. And I was just looking and I'm writing about the idea of the clearing and poetry as a space to dance, to laugh, to cry, to do. To grieve, to change. And we talked about the clearing as being a kind of boundaryless space where anything is possible. And I, I said at the beginning that I think when a poem touches me, it, it really does touch the deepest threads of my experience, emotions, my feelings. So although I have talked about it, the language doesn't do justice to how I feel in that clearing where things do become clearer and there is a sense of solidarity and you know we, we're in this together thank you do you want to say a bit more about you know this idea of poems as friends what well, kind of friend this has been to well you? yes i feel that she is alongside me not so much whispering, but saying. I feel this is physical for me. But it is like she's in the room and it's an intimate exchange between the two of us where I don't say very much, but I feel a lot. 
So she, she is extending a hand to me here. It's an invitation. Have, have a think about how you can do this thing that you've, has been a darkness, has been a shadow inside of you. How can you do that differently? And for that, I'm very grateful. Mm. Thank you. Rishi. The man in the room next to mine has the same complaint as I. When I wake in the night, I hear him turning. And then he coughs. And I cough. And after a silence, I cough. And he coughs again. This goes on for a long time. Until I feel we are like two roosters calling to each other at false dawn. From far away, hidden farms. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really beautiful. So we're going to move on to a slightly different kind of poem here. Um, Rishi, would you be kind enough to tell us what you've brought and to read it out for us? So I've brought a poem called Lousy with Unfuckedness I Dream by Amy Key. Each night I count ghostlets of how my body was wanted behind with deadheading. Rose hips have come, behind with actions that count only when the timing is right. I took out a contract, it was imprudent in value, behind with a sepsis. Hello, microbes of my body, we sleep together. Hello, cats, I make my bed daily. Of the three types of hair on the sheets, only one is human. I count the bedrooms I never had sex in. But there were cars, wild woods. Blackfly has got to all the nasturtiums. You cannot dig up a grapevine and expect shelter to come. I'm touched by your letter, writes a friend. You prevaricate desire, says message. All this fucking with no hands on me. Thank you. When did you first make this poem, Rishi? This is a fairly new poem. Uh, relatively, I think 2014, 15. And I think I would have read it pretty much when it came out there and then. One of those ones that flashed across Twitter and just dived in. Um, you know, I've known Amy for a while now and follow her on social media, so it would have been relatively easy to come across. And was it was it a kind of an immediate yeah. impact? Yeah, so I've, I've been a fan of her work and love what she does across most mediums for um, for a while. But this this landed in a in a way that I wasn't expecting, and I think the best way that I can characterise it was a gut punch. It was a proper proper gut punch of a poem, and those are rare. Though I think when they land with you as Ros has been saying, so physically and viscerally that you have to take it into you in some way. And this, this was one of those from first reading. I'm intrigued that it was a gut punch because I kind of see Rishi in this kind of poem. <laughs> <laughs> I, th there is probably a degree of narcissism in that. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, that's an interesting opening up, isn't it, in terms of what does land with you um, and something that reflects... Yes, who you are, but almost the stuff that you are 
slightly scared of admitting to yourself the stuff that gets deeper into you than you're happy to admit that you're ready to admit and I think there is a certain degree of talking to the bits of me that I don't like talking to that's going on in this poem and that's that's a degree of why it lingers um, I have to be really honest when I first saw this poem <laughs> it didn't hit me it wasn't a gut punch no. I kind of went I've got no idea what this is. I don't know what to do with this. I'm going to have to have a conversation about this poem. And I, and I, don't, I don't know if I get it. For, for people that might be only listening to, to this, Rishi, could you describe how it is laid out? And I don't know if this has a particular name, that kind of form. Uh, I've never considered it as having a particular form. But forgive me for counting that, but one, two, three, four, five, six... 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Uh -huh. So, um, it is laid out squarely on the page, um, and it's almost justified in terms of how it's aligned. But it is 14 lines that it falls into. So we can start to think of it as a sonnet. Yeah, not a traditional sonnet, not a sonnet that might look familiar to us, but... It's kind of divided up with these mm, slash... Forward slashes. Forward slash. Which is a, a lovely, aggressive form of punctuation as well. But if we think of it as a sonnet, this takes us into mm. love sonnet territory. Mm. And maybe that's a way of starting to open this up. Okay, interesting. Say more. Now you've got me, Rishi. I'm in now. <laughs> um, and there's that interesting turn on that eighth line, as it were, mm. where we suddenly nail it to this individual in her life um, yeah. and talking about sex out of <laughs> outside the bedroom, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. Part of the reason why the sonnet lasts and part of the reason why we've been writing them for however long we've been writing them is precisely the way that we can balance the interior, the exterior, the intellectual, the emotional, and hinge that on that turn. And so I think there's something absolutely that's going on here that is manifesting these physical, tangible aspects of a life that's potentially lonely, potentially sad, but in some way actually giving it joy as well because of the sheer tangibility of the memories and the experiences that come through as well. So you can read this as very bleak and very despairing, but you can also read it as the sadness that I have now is fine because I had such wonderful experiences and had such wonderful memories as well. And depending on mood, sometimes I'll read it more optimistically and sometimes I'll read it more, more bleakly, more, more darkly. And I think part of Amy's brilliance is the fact that the accumulation of those images means that you can come to it in, you know, in either frame and get what you need at that particular moment and that particular reading. I think those images are really profound in each line. And I think there's something about the repeat of behind with dead heading, behind mm. with actions that count only, behind with asepsis. I'm wondering if it's almost like delaying getting rid of this memory. I want to hold on to. And all these things, the dead heading, is that the, the cutting off mm. of... She's just holding back on that for a bit. And take that further. Deadheading is, of course, what allows new growth to happen. 
And so what does that say then when that delay is going on? It's often that thing, isn't it, when we've had some form of trauma, there is some sort of change, and that desire that we need to move to the next stage immediately. You know, why would you want to linger? But of course we know that we linger. We know that we often can wallow in bad memories, feelings that discomfort us. Maybe there's a, there's a pleasing thrill to that. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we can't get past it. And there's almost a, a daring here to actually say, don't feel ashamed about that. Yeah. You know, we can always be medicated is the wrong verb, but we can always just be encouraged to say that bad thing has happened. Move past it. Move past it. Go on to the next thing. And at one level, this poem is say, like, no, hold the thing, hold that memory, because potentially there is growth for you here as well if you can understand it and if you can start to unpack it. And I think that's that's almost a rare thing to to encounter across anything, let alone let alone poetry. <laughs> I think it's a really fascinating poem and I got a real sense that it's quite difficult to get hold of the narrative Mm -hmm. voice and I thought I'm going to Google Amy Key and it was great to go back to the launch of her collection that this this poem is in and I thought oh wow yeah she is a big voice she's an exuberant person and she said something that I found fascinating and she said I'm not almost I'm not willing to just be one person or to speak in one voice I am interested in fragments and going backwards and forwards and in and out of experience and I thought oh yeah yeah fascinating really enjoyed it and I think Roy you're seeing of a bit of me in that poem, I think, is partly answered by what, what Ros said about Amy there as well. There is that shared interest in multitudes, there is that shared interest in fragments, and that accretion of experience and meaning that sort of comes out of that. And that daring as well, just in terms of actually saying, I'm going to throw this down, and I'm going to trust that you're going to get what you need from it, and you're not going to need a nice bow or ribbon wrapped around it so tada here is the perfect reading of it and i think it the poem grows for for not giving you that Mm. absolutely i think it is one of those that really rewards you for staying with it and for staying with it and for staying with (laughs) it and then i started my experience with it was that then i started to be able to make a bit more sense of the narrative voice actually like you i struggled with that Ros, because I was a bit annoyed. I was like, well, why, not, why aren't you just punctuating this so that it makes sense to me straight away? You know. And actually, of course, it was much more rewarding when I invested in it. Yeah. And it encourages that. And it, it, it is a challenge, I think. Yeah. And that's kind of great. I'm interested to know, Rishi, if you can say more about the ways in which it spoke to you mm-hmm. and therefore why it wasn't something that yeah. went into your head, it was a gut punch. That starts with going back to my 20s. My 20s were a difficult time, sort of post-university, trying to find a career, settle into that. And I was single for a long, long time. And that sort of period of enforced celibacy felt like forever. And I think at one very deep level, that poem sort of speaks to that completely. So it's a memory of going back there. You know, um, and so that thing about not moving past pain, 
you know, that was a long time ago. That's what twenty years ago now. But there's still something there. There's a kernel of something there that you know helps fuel other writing. And I like the fact that I can see ghosts of that experience that's within the poem. So that's one thing. And there's in in different ways I write about desire or imagined desire and almost lives that aren't led through relationships that haven't been had or you know passing friendships or passing glances of almost that capital R romantic but not trees of nature but just actually that boundlessness of oh what would happen if I'm, I'm giving so much of myself away here this is terrible <laughs> isn't it and I think there is a lot of speaking to that possibility that goes on in here as well and that speaks to me there's you know, that lovely German word, torchless panic, you know, the idea that doors rapidly closing in your life after the age of 30. And so, you know, you freak out because oh, I haven't done this or I haven't done that. And this feels like a poem that comes out of that sense of have I done everything yet? What am I waiting for? And so it's, it, it goes beyond, I think, just sex and relationships into something that's trying to grasp it more as well. So at one level, this is a poem about how do you live a good life and how do you make peace with the way that your life has unfolded in any given way, right? You can be in a perfectly happy marriage and you still linger for the person that you spent six weeks with. Mm. This is inner life stuff that we barely talk about to ourselves, let alone each other. And how do you start to hope those conversations? Yeah, I mean, that'd be a deep conversation to have with a friend at 2am who you've known for 20 years, right? Yeah, this poem often acts as that sort of space in which you can at least think about those things. That's great. And it's interesting, you, you, you talked about the ghosts of your experience, and of course she, she talks about yeah. the ghostlets. Which I, I love mean, that, ghostlets. Yeah, I mean, and there's... Um, every love story is a ghost story. Um, which has been variously attributed to David Foster Wallace, um, uh, Emily Dickinson. You know, it, it, it's, it's one of those disputed phrases that no one could quite pin down. But there is a really deep, profound truth in that idea of every love story is a ghost story. Often the people who touch you the most aren't destined to hang around. It's maybe a night, it is maybe that six weeks, it's maybe three months. And reconciling their impact, their presence in your life with the fact that they might not be there through death, through illness, through moving away, through just life happening, stuff happening. How do you make sense of that? This poem to me is a perfect example of this is how you start to make, make sense of that, by acknowledging the physical, the tangible, but also the emotional states and the emotional landscape that you might have been in. I guess good poetry is the ones that ask the questions yeah. without giving a solution, as it were. She's got a very, very tender heart, hasn't mm -hmm. she, that, that really does need protecting. I mean, when I was watching her reading poems from this collection, very, very short poem, you'll know it, Rishi, and she, she hooks up with a guy, I don't think it lasts very long, but there's a description of it was like small boys beating a fish against a pier wall yeah. rather than throwing the fish back in the sea. Yeah. And I thought, oh, gosh, 
you know, it's like she knows that there is this tenderness she wants and moves toward experience, but she knows she has to protect mm -hmm. herself. And all of that somehow yeah. is in here as well. And you saying that has put me in mind of David Lynch, because, of course, that's something that he has explored in the past. And I'm thinking, yeah, there's almost these wonderful images from Wild at Heart where the intense focus on the matches flare as it's lit and then just holding the camera on there yeah, as it burns down and so it singes the fingers. There's an, that element to this as well. That acknowledgement that, yeah, the most profound relationships are the ones that are often messy, that are actually don't fit into nice, neat tram lines, that don't necessarily have ha happy ever afters. But doing so in a way that doesn't feel pity me, that doesn't feel, that, that doesn't feel, oh, woe is me. Oh, there's no self-pity no. in her poetry at all. No, I mean she, she's she's in it, but she she also too mm. is the absolute observer, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. This collection, this is Amy's second collection. It's called "Isn't Forever." Yeah. <laughs> in a moment, I am going to ask Ros if you would read this for Rishi. But Rishi, this isn't the kind of poem that one might normally think of as being a friend. Can you just say a little bit about the kind of friend this poem is to you? So this, uh, this is the friend that turns up when everyone else has run away. Um, Sir Alex Ferguson once talked about how he was the person who would turn up at a party as everyone else was grabbing their coats. And he would be the one to listen to you through the night. And it's that sort of friend who will turn up, almost without asking, right, and sensing that you might be in some sort of trouble and you need whatever it is you need, whether it is the shot of whiskey, whether it is the, you know, the arm around the shoulder, whatever that might be. It's the rock to me. It really is that sort of friend. That's fantastic. Thank you. Mm. Ros, would you uh, give it a read for us? Sure. Lousy with unfuckness, I dream. Each night I count ghostlets of how my body was wanted, behind with deadheading. Rose hips have come, behind with actions that count only when the timing is right. I took out a contract, it was imprudent in value, behind with asepsis. Hello, microbes of my body. We sleep together. Hello, cats. I make my bed daily. Of the three types of hair on the sheets, only one is human. I count the bedrooms I never had sex in. But there were cars, wild woods. Black fly has got all the nasturtiums. You cannot dig up a grapevine and expect shelter to come. I am touched by your letter, writes a friend. You prevaricate desire, says message. All this fucking with no hands on me. Thank you. Thank you both. I thought I might just close with a poem. This was one that was brought to us by Andrew Scott, 
He was the hot priest in Fleabag, amongst many other things. And it's Love by George Herbert. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them, let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. I don't know why, somehow that felt appropriate after the other two poems we had. And I just want to say thank you both so very much for coming and sharing these poems and these stories so honestly and in such a, a beautifully tender and heartfelt way. I really appreciate that. And a massive thank you to you, Roy, for, for jumping in so superbly. Pleasure, um, thank you. And thank you to all of you for, for coming and giving us your time on a Sunday. Thank you so much. Ah, mm. oh, that was great, Michael. It was great to be able to share that day and that brilliant event. You watched it through a computer screen. It was it was live streamed, I believe. Yeah, it was. So it may be that some of our listeners are kind of experiencing again in audio version. I don't know. Mm. But um, yeah, it was brilliant to receive through the live stream. Fantastic. And um, yeah, I haven't really had the chance to ask you, you know, how, how was it after you got over the hot train? And you found yourself there with Roy, awaiting these two phenomenal poets and their chosen friends. Yeah. How was it for you? Well, of course, we had the, the extra little bit of drama of, is Rishi going to show up? So we were, we were having to kind of arrive at various strategies in case he didn't make it. But actually, that's making it sound more stressful than it was. The whole thing was really great. Everybody at the Belgrade Theatre were incredibly welcoming and incredibly helpful. And everything just went really smoothly, actually. It was, you, I don't want to say you weren't missed, Fiona, because of course you were. But it all went really, really well, thanks. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. And Ros and Rishi, as we've heard, were just so open and generous. And it felt like we really went somewhere in the conversation you know, and uh, that's testament to their kind of generosity of spirit, I think. Yeah, so I loved it, thanks. I think the other thing is that I noticed when I was experiencing it, which is really exciting about that format, is the way the poems kind of spoke to each other. Mm. 
kind of quite surprisingly. I mean, if you look at those two poems, you're not thinking that's going to happen, right? Yeah. But somehow, when we have that live format with with two guests and two poems, yeah, it's really interesting the way the the different friendships that have been struck up between those poems in turn kind of speak to one another. It's, um, it's really lovely. Yeah, it's an interesting format, that isn't it? It's only the second time we've we've done it like that. For, if anyone else wants, if you want to hear another. One of those we did one at Latitude Festival. Is that two, years, three years ago now? With Nadine Shah and Hannah Jane Walker, of course, which is available to listen in our archives. So yeah, we should do more of those for you. Definitely. So it's good to be back, and we will be back again in October, of course, with an exciting episode. And before that happens, probably, it will be National Poetry Day on October the 6th. And I'm sure we'll be out and about on the social media with Poems as Friends in various ways. So watch out for that. And also look out for the launch of our friend Roy McFarlane's new collection, Living by Troubled Waters, coming out in October with Nine Arches Press and I think there are various reading events of that which you will find on their website and we'll be putting links out for that too. And as you you would have heard towards the beginning of this episode, hearing Roy uh, read poetry is, is, is quite a thing. He's, uh, he's a really terrific reader of poems, isn't he? And that's not necessarily true of all poets. So we'll be back next month with more Poems as Friends. Until then, thank you for listening. Listener.